So welcome back to the Coffee and Heroes Review Show podcast as we continue our catch-up of all the titles from this year and we're going to be focusing now on the 10th of November and once again some great titles for us to discuss here. Your host is always Alan from Coffee and Heroes in Belfast joined by Mr Keith Miller. Yeah, I think he's pretty much the same as he was since the last time we talked which was about mm, looks at watch 15 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah yep I have to say exactly the same. Exactly. Happy as Larry. Happy as Larry. I'm going to be even happier as we talk about more comics and remind ourselves just how good some of them were and therefore want to reread them despite having ever going pull lists of new stuff to read. But uh, yeah, so this is again 10th of November. So as ever, we have uh, our breakdowns and this is quite an interesting one. Actually, this might be the first time ever. Uh, mine was 25 titles in total. That was a total of 8 DC five marvel and 12 indies so 25 for me and for you 25 well, that may be a first <laughs> might be 25 titles total seven dc eight marvel 10 indie and i had one marvel trade paperback which was hawkeye the uh the the ballad of uh barton and bishop uh which was the uh the the, the great matt fraction david Adger run which the current fantastic tv series on uh, disney plus of hockey is based on something i'm very much looking forward to watching uh, i've decided to just let it build up on christmas eve i'm going to close the store i'm going to come home i'm going to open a wee bottle of wine and i'm just going to watch all those six episodes back to back i think that's a good way to lead into christmas i think so it finishes this this wednesday which is the 22nd uh, i believe mm-hmm. um i'm currently an, an episode behind and uh why a wee bottle of wine? Open a regular size bottle of wine. <laughs> well, treat yourself. You know, I, I mean, I, I say a wee bottle of wine as a normal bottle. You know, it's, it's once you start getting <laughs> in the magnums and stuff, it's proper sized. But yeah, with it being Christmas, who knows? I'll treat myself. I'll treat myself. But yeah, I've heard nothing but great things. I suppose it'll be a spare case of from Wednesday to Friday, just avoiding whatever spoilers pop up. But you know what? If you were able to avoid Spider Man spoilers, Hawkeyes, wee buns, I think, so mm-hmm. shouldn't be a problem. But uh, yeah, as I say, you, you, you can see there, Indy took the tolls for us both this week. I had almost half my pull list was Indy, near enough half of yours was Indy as well. So mm-hmm. it's perhaps no surprise we're kicking off the honourable mentions with a few different Indy picks. And I'll kick off first with uh, the six sidekicks of Trigger Keaton. It says number one in my notes, but it was actually number six, which was the last issue. Uh, this is written by Kyle Starks, art by Chris Schweizer. And I thought this was an extremely satisfying ending for our tortured sidekicks as the <laughs> truth came out about who killed 80s action icon Trigger Keaton, you know. This series has just been an absolute blast from start to finish, you know, varied and interesting characters, an exploration of the pitfalls of fame, a peek behind the curtain, and a murder mystery plot thrown in for good measure as well. It's, I think this was a bit of a sleeper title that people may have missed out on, so that's the reason I wanted to shine some more light on it before it hits trade paperback in January of next year. You know, Keith very kindly lent me Rock Candy Mountain, another series by the same creative team. It was thoroughly brilliant. And this was of the, the same sort of level of quality, I thought. So, yeah, highly, highly recommended. So definitely keep an eye out for this when it hits uh, when it hits the trade. And uh, possibly not the same. Last time we'll be seeing our six sidekicks. Indeed, it did leave a little uh, a little tease at the end, didn't it? So we can but sure hope. Sure we, I can but hope. I mean, I just hope that they make the, the Trigger Keaton fan club a real thing and I can get me a nice signed photo of, of Trigger Keaton from, uh, from the 80s, you know. 
<laughs> wouldn't be wouldn't be wouldn't be one bit surprised alan if you if you could <laughs> well this might be the most uh, serious juxtaposition of series that we ever talk about because you move from the relative comedy and light-hearted nature of six sidekicks of trigger keaton to the very very dark and heavy out uh, from awa um out is uh, by creators uh, Rob Williams, Will Conrad, and Marco Lesko, and as I say, comes from the AWA Upshot label, uh, which has been doing some fantastic stop, stuff of recent uh, weeks and months. Um, out is the story of the waning days of World War II, with the Allies advancing a desperate Nazi officer unearths an ancient force of evil that he hopes will turn the tide of battle a vampire. To test the power of a secret weapon, he unleashes the monster on an unsuspecting group of allied POWs in a mountain uh, in a mountain concentration camp. It's up to Nakona, a Comanche language expert, a code talker, uh, to communicate with the vampire and find out what it really wants. And issue two kicks off right where issue one finished, jumps right in to pick up with the Dill being eviscerated by the uh, the vampire creature and. Nakona is knocked on out by the guards and dragged away before he can raise the alarm. The commandant wants to uh, control the creature uh, as he's worried it will turn on the Nazis at some point. But the priest, you know, he's one of those sort of priests who's under the, well, I suppose all priests are under the occult, but under the, you know, the dark side of stuff. Uh, you know, the priest reassures him, you know, but only if there's a, a code breaker that the Germans could possibly control who could communicate with the vampire. Don't we know one of those? Um, William's script is hitting all of the right notes and throughout this issue it ramps up the tension and the horror and we've got this just perfect bloody mix of POWs trapped in a castle with psychopathic Nazis and a vampire and you know William, Will Conrad's art is just it's gritty and dangerous and it totally fits the World War II era so you know, yeah, we've got we've got a combination of the Great Escape and uh, and vampire horror here, so there's not too much that can go wrong. Certainly in the reading, I can't suggest the same might not go wrong for the Nazis or the POWs. Well, we definitely hope something bad happens to the Nazis, because it's never a bad thing when bad stuff happens to Nazis in fiction, mm. know, whether it's vampires or not. But yeah, I'm on this as well. I mean, AWA always happy to jump on their stuff. It's always great genre storytelling. You know, this one obviously very high in the horror and. We always like a little bit of uh, a little bit of history told with a twist, shall we Ooh. say? So uh, yeah, I've been digging this as well. I think it's five issues off the top of my head. Right. Uh, so uh, that's out number two. So we're going to continue the indie theme next with myself. Another honourable mention, which is what's the furthest place from here? This was a brand new number one, written by Matthew Rosenberg and art by Tyler Boss who are a, a creative team that have worked together before. They were behind the absolutely brilliant four kids walk into a bank, which was actually from Black Black Mask Studios. Uh, so they're back now, and once again, they've set us on the road, I think, to something pretty special. You know, what's the furthest place from here? It's it's a mix of Mad Max, High Fidelity, and Latter-day Danger Days era My Chemical Romance. In other words, this feels like a book directly aimed at me. And possibly another person in the store whose name begins with S and ends in M. I'll let you fill the blanks. But, uh, yeah, the blurb for this one was, you know, the world has ended. All that remains are gangs of children living among the ruins. But Sid believes there must be something more out there. When she disappears into the wastelands, her gang will risk everything to bring her home. 
a story about the things that matter most, your survival, your loved ones, and of course, your record collection. So, yeah, this was an excellent oversized first issue. Matthew Rosenberg is another one of those great writers that we will follow anything he does. He's equally at home doing something fun, superhero-based, like Hawkeye Freefall, or, you know, doing a DC horror book, which he's doing at the moment with DC vs. Vampires and Task Force Said. But with this one, this feels right in his wheelhouse as well. He loves a good bit of world building. And with this one, it was an oversized first issue. You've got some cool characters in there, really good dialogue. Again, you're treated to some great world building, although a lot of it remains a mystery as well. You're sort of slowly discovering this world. It doesn't throw everything at you in an exposition-heavy first issue. It actually leaves you to fill in some of the blanks. And Tyler Boss's art, I'm, I'm a big fan of. Uh, Tyler Boss in general. Tyler Boss did a, a creator-owned title earlier this year, Dead Dog's Bite, which was really, really excellent and had some Twin Peaksy vibes. So uh, the only disappointment with it for me was they announced really early on they were going to be doing these deluxe editions and each issue was going to come with a small press vinyl that would have two songs on it that were, you know, pretty much influenced the issue. But these deluxe editions, they're either sparse or non-existent this side of the world and... That's frustrating as it seemed like a really cool extra. Um, I do hope that hopefully when they do a collected edition, that they might just be able to make good on that promise with a full album of songs instead of just the, the singles along the way. But yeah, I thought this was a, a really, really great start for this title. Really, really cool issue. Yeah, I enjoyed that uh, that comparison you made, uh, Mad Max and uh, High Fidelity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the gist of it being that you know, in a, in a post-apocalyptic future, uh, various gangs have organized themselves around certain themes. And, you know, the, the gang that we find ourselves placed in uh, has has organized themselves around a record shop. Um, and, uh, you know, they have a, a coming of age where they, they all pick a record and that defines who they are. And there's there's something about growing up. You can't, you're not allowed, once you grow up, once you become an adult, uh, you know, you're, you're out, you're gone. Um, so there's there's a wee bit something a wee bit Huckleberry Finn or so I don't know something about that I don't know um, Lord of the Flies I don't know there's there's something edging on the edge of my consciousness there and then there's another gang that seems to uh, seems to model themselves on bankers or or, or, or capitalist pigs um, you know something along those lines so uh, it's really yeah there's a lot of a lot of concepts and themes and as you say some great word building going on and uh, really interested to see what happens the arts the arts phenomenal as you say yeah really enjoyed this um i wonder could you find out who the bands are on the on the uh on the small press vinyls and, and find them elsewhere yeah stick a wee spotify um playlist together or something like that might be an mm-hmm. idea i just really love the idea of the you know giving something a little extra for the 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 single issue market because they weren't even being marketed as very expensive it was going to be like a $15 book so it was getting you know the vinyl and the and the uh the issue but they massively underestimated demand and they had mm. to press them something like I think it was four months in advance whereas comic orders are two months in advance yeah, so they, they, yeah. they just couldn't meet the demand and that's that's fair enough I suppose in a way that's a good thing it shows the title is uh is popular as well so sounds uh sounds like a logistical nightmare um Rosenberg's still a guy I'd love to talk to as a as a you know a, a, someone who works in the comic industry who used to work in the music industry um, and you know this is him drawing on his experience in the label that he that he worked in and such. So maybe we should try and make that happen. I, I would certainly think that would be an interesting idea. <laughs> so what's the furthest place from here rounds out a uh, a few indie titles and honourable mentions. Let's move on to uh, some big two stuff. Yeah, swinging into the uh, Marvel universe with 
the return of Strange Academy with number 13. And it's, it's great to see Strange Academy back after a, a short, I think it was a three-month recess, uh, you know, following the, the revelation defeat of Mr. Misery, who was masquerading as Calvin's coat this whole time. And uh, I've definitely missed this book. I mean, regardless of what's happening to the, the ensemble cast of characters in the book, Scotty Young always imbues it with so much heart. And regardless of, of the darkness or their magic, there's always room for a wee bit of warmth and optimism in, in a book that so beautifully blends the world of magic with the somewhat more humdrum drama of, of high school. And uh, in this, we get a wee bit of breathing room, I think, before before we kick into the impacts of the, the death of Doctor Strange, uh, who is, of course, the uh, the principal of the uh, of the Strange Academy. And it's the weekend, and the kids are heading into New Orleans, which is where the, the Academy is based for a good time, all except Emily, or I guess she's our, our main protagonist, or point-of-view character, who goes to visit a mysterious prisoner in uh, in the basement that uh, we've been we've been teased about. And we learn that that prisoner is an imperator, from Jason Aaron's Doctor Strange run a couple of years ago. And uh, we see, you know, Emily really has grown as a character, you know, and uh, as I suppose as one does at, at high school and and that. And she gives him a magic amulet that allows him to live in a, in a mind palace uh, with, a, with a happy fantasy family life. And meanwhile, the other kids break into a graveyard in search of ghosts and find the tomb of the infamous uh, Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen. Um, we learn about um, Zoe, who's one of our, our characters, being uh, Marie Laveau's ancestor, and we get Zoe's origin story. So slowly but surely, we're 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 learning a wee bit more about all of these characters coming to, you know, we've already been through uh, Doyle, Dramamu, and and the the uh, the Asgardian kids and that. So it's Zoe's turn here, and we get her origin story, which is all about you know uh, the misuse of dark magic from a voodoo peddler. You know we get you know. Guy called Street Lamp who features in her in her background story and um, you know there's 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 this I guess underlying theme about the misuse of dark magic and uh, you know once that's all done and told they go clubbing instead and and Emily joins them but later Calvin pulls Zoe aside to ask her about this character Street Lamp uh, you know and he seems to have picked up all of the wrong messages from the story. And we're kind of seeing his hunger for some kind of magic to replace his his lost magic coat, uh, you know, which is a great counterpoint to the Imperator in the basement, which is a, a creature that, you know, was out to kill and destroy all magic. So I don't know where where this uh, desperation of Calvin's is going to lead, but I don't think it'll be to a very a very light place. Um, but yeah, really, really good to see Strange Academy back. He's still on it. Yeah, hundred percent. I I wholeheartedly agree that it's one of Marvel's best titles, and it's it's great that an an all ages title that is one of Marvel's best titles as well. Mm-hmm. So it'll mm-hmm. appeal to a wide range, and I suppose it was just on break while they you know do the death of Doctor Strange stuff and how they're going to tie that in and so forth. But yeah, it's uh it's great as well because you don't get a lot of creator owned books within the big two, and this feels like a creator owned book to me. You know, it's it's loads of new characters that were created for it. It's it's been the same creative team the whole way through. You know, Humberto Ramos has always been on art. Scotty Young's always been writing, uh, and now you're starting to get like tie-ins to it and stuff like that as well. So the world's definitely building uh, within it, and yeah, I definitely think it's one of one of Marvel's best titles around at the moment. 
Uh, as well, actually, I should note that uh, I think I saw it solicited they're going to do a hardcover to collect the first 12 issues. Now, the first trade of Strange Academy came out. My only disappointment with it, because I suppose in a way it's an all-ages book, so it's a positive and a negative, but they, they shrunk it down so that it's a smaller book, similar to what yeah. they did with Wind. Yeah. And while I think that's great because it appeals to a younger audience, you know, it's easier for them to hold, that kind of thing, the art in it's gorgeous, and it's such a shame to see it shrunk down. So hopefully this 12-issue hardcover, it's going to be, you know, standard comic size or, or even bigger because it's a beautiful-looking book as well. So, uh, yeah, Strange Academy oh. at number 13. So... My next honourable mention is going to be a DC title, Shock Horror. And mm-hmm. just as we had the end of Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, we have another uh, miniseries which ended this week, which was Justice League Last Ride. It ended with issue seven. Originally concocted as a six-issue miniseries, but stretched out to seven. This is your weekly mention of Chip Zdarsky, of course. Uh, and art on this is by Miguel Mendonca. Um, so their their little Justice League run comes to an end, and I think it comes to a very satisfying end, because it could almost serve as a starting point for a new era of Justice League. In number seven, I mean, we're always very quick to compliment Chip's writing, and, and deservedly so, but in number seven, for me, the art took center stage. You know, we were gifted to Superman, Wonder Woman, Uppercut, the Dark Side's Jaw, we had Martian Manhunter getting in on the act, although didn't he die? Green Lantern, oh. Ring Construct for the win. A uh, bunch of nuclear weapons, hen for apocalypse, you know. Miguel Mendonca, he must have enjoyed the sheer range of characters he got to draw in this story, and it's an opportunity to seize with both hands. This this seems like, to me, your exact, like, your favourite style of art. You know, it's drawn in that sort of classic style to honour yesteryear, but it's also infused with enough detail and wow factor to sit alongside the modern greats. So, has those clean lines that you love so much. Uh, Zdarsky, yeah, he understands these characters and their dynamics as well, so I really hope this is not the last time we see him on a Justice League title. Uh, again, trade due out early next year, and again, definitely worth keeping an eye out for, I think. Yeah, uh, read it, enjoyed it, possibly possibly not to the same degree as you did. There was times it felt a wee bit like a slog, uh, but uh, overall, yeah, uh, positive vibes. Yeah, so uh, that is Justice League Last Ride number seven. And as we come to the end of a series, we come to a massive relaunch for a new series. Yeah, quite. Uh, swinging into the Marvel corner here. Um, we've got Venom 1 by Al Ewing Ram V, penciled by Brian Hitchin, inked by Andrew Curry, uh, colored by Alex Sinclair. Um, this follows the events of King and Black. Uh, the, 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 the symbiote god Null has been vanished banished and eddie brock has become the symbiote's new god uh and while attempting to repair the damage from null's attack eddie's confronted with an omen from a mysterious being that threatens everything he ever loved in his power in his life and everything and meanwhile we have eddie's son dylan wrestling with his abandonment and his rage issues and those feelings are only amplified when they lead to him bonding with the the venom symbiote, despite the fact his his dad told him not to. So, I mean, obviously after the end of Kate's and Stegman's run, you know, on on, on venom, there was as some would say there was fairly big shoes to fill. But I mean, these uh, Alex Ewing and, and Ram V really have the have the chops to to fill it and uh, doing something you know entirely unexpected. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, good for them, uh, you know, picking up straight where straight where uh, 
where the other two picked up. Um, so I get the feeling like that you know while Cates and Stegman may have taken venom to never before seen heights, I think that this this issue maybe shows that that journey was only just the, the beginning and and for Eddie and for Dylan, you know. And I'm happy that the the characters in great hands, great jumping on pay point, and and a really interesting move forward as well uh, for the character. Eddie and Dylan are both really relatable despite, you know, what they've been through, saving, you know, saving the word multiple times and so forth and so on, uh, dying and coming back and whatever else. And Al Ewing is seemingly handling the Eddie side, you know, the space-based hive maiden symbiont god adventures with Ram V writing Dylan's more street-based bonded with the original Venom symbiote, despite the fact that he told me not to side of things. Um, Artwork is exceptional throughout by Brian Hitch and uh, I'd say particularly on the Spacebound side and uh, you know the whole thing just feels cosmic and larger than life uh, while not losing the the more humanistic element. Um, it's a fast-paced story, it's exciting, there's lots of twists and surprises and uh, you know an issue like this has the responsibility of, of taking what's gone before and, you know, switching the channel a bit and letting us know what's going on. Um, you know, like almost like a spin-off series from a really popular TV show or, or whatever. So, and I think that's just that it, uh, I think that's just that it phenomenally. I'm really excited to see what's, to see what's going on and what's happening. And, you know, the, the mystery of the, you know, what, what Eddie can do with his powers where he can inhabit any symbiote across the universe, you know, sent them out in groups to, to help people and, the, just the mystery of, of, of whatever this, this creature is that might be opposing him or this thing is that might be opposing him. But all the while, you know, Eddie's still the guy from from New York City. You know, he's, he's he feels like he's in control, but sometimes he's over his head, you know. And yeah, I just I thought this was this was great stuff. What did you reckon? Yeah, I mean, this is another great example of a title that has built up a great following and then it gives people a jumping on point and numbers go up for it now obviously since donny cates and Rand stegman started their run it was a good few years ago we were you know smaller store then we've obviously grown since then but what we've seen with venom number one i mean my fear was that people when they came to the end of cates and stegman were going to go that'll do for now but then they saw the quality of the 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 creators coming on to it and it's actually went up in terms of pull numbers for the store. And I think that's testament to Al Ewing's work, certainly on Immortal Hulk. Ram V's obviously becoming more and more of a trusted name. And then Bran Hitch. Bran Hitch, sometimes I can take or leave, but I think this first issue was gorgeous. I think there was more detail in his normal amount of work, for example. And yeah, I loved issue one. I, I do worry a little bit maybe that it's not quite as user-friendly as it could be. Um, we did have one or two um, good conversations with a couple of different regulars in store and but I suppose in a way it leads the conversation you know and then they can always go back and, and check out that previous work mm-hmm. but I think if this is your first time you're picking up Venom you're like wait Eddie has a son wait Eddie's a space god that rules all the si- what you know what I mean so mm-hmm. I think it, uh, it sets it up in a way that we know exactly what's going on but because those big concepts were left I think new time readers might be a tiny bit lost yeah, maybe. I mean, this is definitely one. I can't remember if it did or if it didn't, but it would definitely benefit from a uh, from a, a page one, you know, review of uh, you know state of state of the state of the union address here. Yeah. Uh, you know, like as as Marvel used to do so well. 
Um, so I think this would definitely have benefited from from that. I mean, uh, uh, the the thing that's the most interesting is the deepening chasm between Eddie and the son that he's only just found. Uh, you know, as as Eddie becomes more and more removed on these you know space adventures, you know, and can't keep the house tidy, and and Dylan, who's a kid who's used to looking after himself and paying for himself, but doesn't necessarily like the fact that he has to, you know, again, as you know, I think that's that's going to be interesting. You know, the the difference between the the cosmic and the street based, the and the and the, the father and the son. Yeah, definitely, and and I find it interesting that that's how the writing duties are being split up. Mm-hmm. You know, because Al Ewan, I mean, he can do cosmic stuff inside now, as he's proven many times, mm-hmm. and Rambi's very good at fusing heart uh, into characters. So, yeah, I think this, the, when we spoke to these guys at Thought Bubble, they said they have a plan for at least three, maybe even four years' run, possibly with one event in there. Although, apparently, what I found really interesting was that they said they had a story that they thought was probably worthy of an event, but it's ultimately up to Marvel to choose if that's going to be an event rather than them saying, can we do an event spinning out of so uh but yeah uh, for me anyway i thought it was a great start and i loved that it was an oversized issue that just focused on the one story it wasn't here's an oversized issue with 10 pages at the back of irrelevant sort of nonsense or you know preview Mm -hmm. for bat girls Mm -hmm. i'm looking at you (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah no really solid starting as i say venom remains our number one pull in store for marvel still ahead of amazing spider-man which does amaze me but given the the greatness that was uh no way home maybe that'll change very soon but we shall see well you know as donny kate said you know kids love chains and there are chains in this well that there are that there are so uh yeah venom number one i mean plenty to chat about there i would uh, i would imagine that wasn't far away from being your pick of the week i would say you are exactly right there was a there was a bit of a last minute change on this one as well <laughs> well before we get to those picks of the weeks, so we're going to finish off with a couple of DC honorable mentions working in the same character. I mean, for me, I'm just going to mention this one really quickly, uh, which is Batman the Imposter number two, written by Matson Tomlin, art by Andres Sorrentino. And the reason I'm just going to go into a little bit of detail is, I mean, I went into grave detail on number one, as of course it was a pick of the week. And I just wanted to sort of stop by and say issue two keeps up that same level of quality, both in terms of the storytelling and the art. You know, stakes are getting even more personal in this middle installment, and there's even a glimmer of hope presented in this that Bruce Wayne could even have a chance at happiness. But I have read issue three since. Yeah, that gets extinguished. But it's a really interesting setup in issue two where he actually establishes a personal relationship, and you think this could lead Bruce Wayne in a different direction. So, But uh, yeah, the art and the layouts from Sorrentino continue to be special. I mean... I think there's an argument that he is the best and most visually interesting artist around right now. You look at his work on Gideon Falls, for example. You look at his work on, um, what was it? It was Joker Killer Smile. You look at his work on this. He's just so interesting, primordial as well. Uh, I don't think there's another artist around like him at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, issue three has been read, of course. And then, of course, Matson Tomlin is one of the co-writers of the Batman movie coming soon. So... For those trade waiters, the ex- the collected edition will be around the end of January, so not too long to wait if you didn't indulge in this one. I thoroughly recommend doing so. Um, so yeah, Batman the Imposter number two, and we're still sticking with that uh, that pointy-eared character. We are indeed, the flying mouse guy. Um, so Batman number 116 for myself by... Uh, 
JTAV and uh, Jorge Jimenez. Jimenez, yes, I was going for Corona there, but that's <laughs> ah, middle west. Uh, absolutely, um, and this is the penultimate issue of Fear State. It's a total doozy, uh, just full on. Uh, looks absolutely phenomenal and conducted on two fronts. Impressively illustrated throughout by Jorge Jimenez. One side of the story takes place in Eden. This is the um, the under under Gotham utopia that has been set up by Poison Ivy. But things aren't quite right with Ivy. There's a the the, the human side of her is missing, and uh, she's threatening to uh, to bring down uh, Gotham um, around uh, around everybody's ears. Um, you know, as the magistrate aims to take her out. And uh, you know, as as the magistrate goons uh, swing in to uh, to try and do so, they're surprised to find Ghostmaker and uh, Harley Quinn waiting to kick their butts. Um, yeah, so it's I mean, it's it's fantastic. I really like the Ghostmaker character. I'm enjoying the uh, the interesting repartee between himself and Harley, and uh, and also Harley and uh, Ivy back together. And uh, then we've also got the. Uh, the influence of Catwoman in there. Um, but most of the action takes place between Batman and Miracle Molly and Scarecrow and Peacekeeper One in the sewers. Um, the, 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 the Scarecrow's fear bomb is about to go off and we've got a couple of standoffs and a great showdown, really violent showdown between Batman and Peacekeeper One. And there's a, you know, there's a great double page spread, you know, with one on the one side, one on the other side, all, taking a moment just to square up against each other. It's uh, it's very cool. Peacekeeper 1 looks class and gets so close to taking out Batman. Um, you know, Batman obviously has his moments too. And uh, just everything, everything just looks really, really slick. Uh, I would say it's just, it's a, it's great. And I love Miracle Molly. I think she's a, she's a phenomenal character. The best, the best of, of James Tinian Run's creations possibly. Uh, I would I would argue, uh, colors are just really vibrant, especially around the likes of of Ivy. You know the color choices nearly make her look more monstrous and inhuman, which is interesting because she has lack in her human side, and uh, and really pop on a character like uh, like Margot Molly, who's pure you know neon day glow, early nineties sort of style. You know, so it's it's really good stuff. Um, yeah. I, I, it, it's really interesting and you know thinking about the link between fear state and future state it's, it's interesting because you sort of wonder now how Sean Mahoney will end up as the, the leader of the magistrate mm-hmm. you know and, and why Simon Saint is you know is where he is in future state and, and how it all might connect together um, you know uh, but yeah very interesting really really great really great uh, stylish issue and uh, you know, getting close to the end of uh, of, of James Tinian's run on the on the character. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this is the penultimate issue. One sixteen, of course, one seventeen will be his last issue. Keep your ears open for a, uh, a future pod where it might just be an honourable mention. Uh, but yeah, I've I've enjoyed Tinian's run a lot. I mean, it's similar to what I was talking about with Venom earlier, giving people jumping on points for established runs. You know, we saw pulls go through the roof for Batman when Tinian came on. And then with 118, which is another new start for a new creative team, again, we've seen it jump up again. So it's uh, it's great to see. But yeah, Fear State has been, I think, one of Tinian's best arcs. Fear State and Joker War would be the, the two standouts from what he's done so far. So 
But again, we'll be chatting on 117 in a future issue uh, or a future episode, <laughs> I am sure. So, uh, yeah, that was Batman 116 to round off the honourable mentions. And we'll finish off this episode with our picks of the week. And we're terrible for referring to type right here. But for me, it's DC. For Keith, it's Marvel. So uh, I'll kick things off with DC. And a title I don't think that you're on. That is correct. And I, I am not. And I'm about to convince you why you should be on it. Perfect. Uh, so this is Robin and Batman number one. Yes, you heard that right. Not Batman and Robin, Robin and Batman. So this is written by Jeff Lemire and art by Dustin Wayne. You know, when you think about it, you don't really get many comics these days with Bruce Wayne as Batman and his sidekick being Dick Grayson as Robin. You know, ever since Dick went and got all grown up and became Nightwing, he's never really looked back. And then there's been a cavalcade of new characters who have taken up the mantle of Robin to Batman, all with their own varying degrees of success. So it was a pleasure to see a new title coming out, exploring the early years of Dick Grayson and his, you know, change into Robin. And not only that, but given that it comes from the team of Jeff Lemire and Dustin Wayne, you know, they recently finished up their thoroughly brilliant Ascender series, which was a sequel to Descender. So this was definitely a title to look forward to, and it did not disappoint. As I say, we're back in the early days of the dynamic duo. You know, you don't even hear that term anymore. There's something so quaint about the dynamic duo. But this is back when Dick Grayson is still processing his grief and he's still very rough around the edges. Batman is still getting used to having a partner who he can rely on, but also feels the weight of needing to protect and teach this child as well. The issue kicks off with a mission in which Dick's arrogance almost costs him and he and Batman have a huge bust up as well. But it's great as well, you know, and, and what adds to that classic feel here is it's wonderful to see Alfred back in a Batman title. You forget just how much heart and understanding he brings to the table. You know, he's able to be that voice of reason in between Bruce and Dick without ever fully taking one side over the other. But at the start of this story, as I say, Dick hasn't even adopted the persona or costume of Robin just yet. But he does by the end of issue one. With this title having Dustin Wayne on it, you know it's going to be beautiful. You know, it's absolutely stunning. It's beautiful lines. It's that watercolor style of coloring that he has become synonymous with. Detailed backgrounds and atmosphere and tension dropping off every page. But there are also deaf splashes of humor every so often as well. You know, Lemire and, and Wayne, they really are a team that just jive together perfectly. This is going to be a three-issue miniseries. Uh, they're thicker issues each time. They're not silly size either, Keith, so no excuses. Mm -hmm. uh, and issue one is a compelling read from beginning to end. You know, the, the characters are still a long way from their familiar camaraderie and the tension between them in the early stages of their partnership. You know, it, it produces a really intriguing team dynamic. So with two more issues to go, it'll be interesting to see where Dick Grayson's story goes from here. So I'm very surprised you were not on this. You know, as a, as a Nightwing fan, you know, getting to see the early days of Dick Grayson. And, and again, you just don't see it anymore. Maybe I intended to be Alan and completely forgot. I've got a little bit behind on uh, on keeping my uh, you know keeping my pools up to date and making sure that you have my my preview order uh, and I'm just with with various things that are that are happening in in, in work and life, uh, which is you know for similar reasons as we've got so far behind in our reviews. Um, but uh, I intend to use the next couple of days to make sure I'm I'm up to date and uh, I'm sure I'll be firing you little please going oh no. <laughs> Can you find me? And you're usually very good at uh, at having and at anticipating, <laughs> anticipating my needs and wants. <laughs> yeah, it's just again. I mean, the, the comics are so you know 
concern with always moving forward and always introducing the new ideas and introducing new characters and new concepts. There's just something great about a series coming along every so often that just goes back to the classic status quo. Doesn't need to be a long ongoing, it can just be a wee mini series, but you know, Dick Grayson in this, he would remind you a tiny bit of Damien. Without uh-huh. the, without the murderous nature to him, of course, but of just course. but just that you know child who is you know acrobatic and well trained, and of course thinks he knows everything going into a situation, mm. you know, and you know, and he needs that influence. He needs the parental figure of Batman to, you know, you know, just bring him back that little bit. But yeah, I was really really impressed with this. It just read so so well. Very cool. I uh, yeah, I uh, uh, you may have me convinced. <laughs> Score. <laughs> awesome. So DC for me, Marvel for you. What's your pick of the week then for the 10th of November? So I don't know if uh, certainly certainly Eternals has been mentioned a number of times uh, by myself uh, on the podcast. Uh, I don't know if it was ever the pick of the week. Maybe the first issue was. Um, but uh, we're swinging back around now as Eternals number seven is my pick of the week. Um Kieran Gillen and Isad Ribic are back for the second arc on the Kirby creation and more lately, more lately, more lately MCU movie stars, The Eternals, following um, following a, a break in the main series, which was filled by a series of Gillen-penned one-shots, exploring both the width and the depth of The Eternals' history and culture. And what a singularly fantastic job the team does on this issue. So just to just to reiterate, the Eternals are living embodiments of themes and concepts. The the inspiration for various heroes and gods from the, throughout human history, placed by the Celestials as protectors of the Great Machine, which is the Earth. And when Eternals perish, they are repeatedly reborn as some version of themselves. Um, a concept that was sort of touched upon in the recent movie. And there's a couple of concepts actually here that were that were touched on the on, on the movie. The this issue kicks off the New York dealing with the fallout of the last issue, which left the Eternals forever altered by the revelation that whenever an Eternal dies, the machine resurrects them, but only by taking the life of one random human. And the Eternals are faced with this horrible truth and with the reality that whenever they've discovered this in the past, the Eternal Unimind has mind-wiped them. Uh, and again, this is something that's sort of touched upon in the movie, but not to not to the degree, you know, the cost of one random human life. And the Eternal Icarus and his peers have come to this realisation and they've, they've realised that this cannot continue. Um, so world-shifting sh- stuff for the Eternals. So while, while Icarus and the crew seek out the deviants of Lemuria, and the deviants were, were, were very differently portrayed in the movie than they are, they always have been in the comic books. They were portrayed as like these sort of monstery, evolving monstery things. The Eternals are the changing people, whereas, whereas the, sorry, the deviants are the changing people, whereas the Eternals are fairly, <coughs> fairly static and resurrected. But Icarus crew have, have, have visited the, the deviants in their city of Lemuria in order to learn how to change their system of immortality from from these people who change themselves. Meanwhile, Thanos, well, someone who I'm sure you're familiar with, Alan. <laughs> familiar sound uh, boy. Yeah, Thanos, who is himself an Eternal, uh, has has broken free from the machine which Fastos used to resurrect him, hoping to use Thanos to break the system. And he's allied himself with the sneaky Druig. All these names will be much more familiar to people haven't seen the MCU uh, movie. 
And he and Thanos intends to bring his own violent brand of change, whether the Eternals want it or not. I mean, I absolutely thought I'd be fed up with Thanos at this stage, given his exposure over the past few years in a variety of media. But Kieran Gillen's writing, you know, really makes that not the case. I mean, Gillen really relishes writing the character in all his vicious, malign glory, and his dialogue is a brilliant read, as is all the dialogue in this book. Um, the Eternals that are in Lemuria are totally out of place, strangers in a strange land, and we can feel that in the pages. And uh, Rubik's art is amazing throughout. It's a detailed feast for the eyes. He captures Thanos perfectly, both whenever Thanos is in in repose and also in in brutal action. Uh, He captures the strange nature of the Deviants and of of Lemuria. And also there's this brilliant cliffhanger at the end of this issue that uh, that is just great. Um, Maybe it's because the character's roles in the movies has given me a little more familiarity to get my teeth into, but the second arc of this book seems to be off to a really strong start. And I'm starting to wonder, wonder that whether... Coupled with the movie, this might be enough to cement the Eternals solidly in the mainstream Marvel universe in a way that they the way that they haven't been before. Um, this is just really, really good stuff. I don't know if you're still on it or not. No, I finished off in the first arc. I did. I never jumped into the one shots that uh, you've spoken very highly of before. I mean, maybe I should have stuck with it a little bit longer. Kieran Gillen is always one of those trustworthy creators to stick with. Um, mm. I, I suppose I was just wondering how long it would go for. I mean, I, I don't know if this is solicited as an ongoing or if it's, you know, it's... I can't remember. I had a feeling 12 was mentioned, but um, but I could be totally wrong. You don't need the one-shots to mm-hmm. get into the second arc. Uh, you know, I would I would pick up uh, I would pick up this issue, um, issue 7, Alan, mm-hmm. uh, and get straight in. This was the strongest issue of the series so far. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was chatting with Brandon about it in store the other day, and he's he's massively good into Eternals, and it's it's interesting that you mentioned Thanos because he says that's the main reason he gets it because he's so brilliantly written in this. Mm-hmm. Kieran Gillen, what do you expect? Well, now that he doesn't have that uh, die title to uh, to talk about anymore, mm-hmm. uh, upcoming book club on the Coffee and Heroes podcast, I'm sure. Uh, yes, indeed. I'm with special guests, no less. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, Eternals, I really must get back to it, in fairness. I still haven't seen the movie, which is, you know, sacrilege in itself, but uh, I don't even know if it's still in the cinema at this point. Mm, I think it's it's approaching Disney Plus rapidly. Yeah, early January, I believe. But mm. it feels to me like a movie to see on the big screen, so I'll, I'll maybe see yeah, it yeah, I mean, in Yeah, in the same way as, as most of the Marvel movies have been. Better on the big screen, but you can appreciate them on the small screen. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Cool. So, Keith's pick of the week then. That was for November 10th, and that was Eternals number 7, Kieran Gillen, and he said Rubik for that one. So, yeah, that brings us to almost halfway through November. So, once again, we're going to take a little break. And then we're going to jump into a brand new episode, which will cover the 17th of November. So I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter, where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm a Scannison 00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland, based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.